being said, uh, let's bow our hearts uh, before the Lord as we come forward with some prayer. Oh Lord, we come before you today rejoicing. Father, many of us, Lord, are being blessed by you, Lord. Many of us, God, have seen your hand work uh, like the leper, like the centurion, Peter's mother, Lord. All those that were healed, Lord, um, from physical maladies and from spiritual uh, bondage, God. Jesus, you heal them. Uh, You heal us, Lord. So we come before you uh, just seeking your word and how it would minister to our bodies, how it would be a balm to our souls, Lord, a salve to us, Lord. Lord, because we are all called, every soul that was ever created was called to be a disciple, Lord. But it's you've given us free will, Father, to choose whether to follow your son or not. But that's what we were created for. Scripture plainly tells us we were created to worship you, to follow you to have a relationship with the Almighty God, the Creator that's staying, that, that, that hangs the stars in the heavens and knows everyone by name. Lord, your word proclaims that you think of us more than the sands of the sea. Wow. Little old me. So we come before you this time, Lord, as we look at what it is to follow you, the cost of following you, Lord. And what it means, Lord, to go to the other side. And, Lord, what it means to be in the boat with you. So we thank you, Jesus, and we praise you. It's in your name that we all say, Amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has these words to say to us. And as we go through the scriptures today, keep these words in mind about what he's talking about. Just kind of a little reference point. Because it uh, definitely applies to us. It definitely applies uh, as we learn about counting the cost. To be called out of this world. To be called out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He said this in the classic exploration of Christian community. Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. We all do. At the, end, all, at the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission. There is his work. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends. He wants to be among the crowd. To be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies. Not with the bad people, but with the devout people. O you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ, if Christ had done what you are doing, who would ever have been spared? And then Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, in the cost of discipleship. Cheap grace means Grace sold on the market on the market like cheap jacks. Cheap jacks. What's cheap jacks? Well, it's a seller of inferior goods without scruples and imitator. That's what that cheap jacks means. Cheap uh, cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wears. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut-rate prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands, without asking questions or without fixing limits. Grace without price. Grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite, What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is a pearl of great price to which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is a kingly rule of Christ who uh, is a kingly rule of price for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. 
It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies a sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price, and what has, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Cheap grace is a deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace, he says. He says here, it is the call of Jesus Christ at which his disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Speaking of those who would leave their nets, the fishermen, but yet we, so too, can cast our nets out into the world and the things of this world, can't we? Can't we do that? Just because they, they cast that out there for fish, we too are the same way. We too can cast our nets into the things of this world, to which Jesus calls us to detach from, and we'll look at that, to separate ourselves from, because it's a distraction to us. It's a distraction in our walks with the Lord. So he had a lot to say here, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, about grace and about the cost of being a disciple and what it means to follow him. And while that is all wisdom, let's look at the Lord's words and see what he has to say about the cost. In these two verses before us, we're in chapter 9, these two verses, and this, uh, these verses before us in chapter 8, we're starting in verse 18, and we're going all the way through to... Uh, verse 27. These verses are about counting the cost to follow Jesus. I mean, if you want to really break it down, every one of us should be a disciple of Jesus. Amen? Every one of us. We're not called to sit on the sidelines. We were all created to be followers of Jesus Christ, to be the disciple of Jesus. You've never met someone here who wasn't created to be a disciple. Because it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loves the world. Now, obviously, not everyone is followed because of free will. The Father has given us free will. So, we who said, Jesus, we want to follow you at one time. Maybe we haven't yet, and we need to. But we said that at one time. We want to follow you. The question is, how do we do it? Why do we do it? What is the cost to follow? What does it cost a man or a woman to follow Jesus Christ? You know, as, we, as we're going on here... It says here, 18, And when Jesus saw the great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Jesus saw the crowd gathered. He saw the crowd, the throngs. He also saw the wrongs. And we'll talk about that. We see a picture here. Jesus saw something. Maybe he sensed something and said, You know what? Let's go to the other side. The crowded throngs had been seeing Jesus heal all the sick and demon-possessed. Physical and spiritual ills, they were all healed, and there was a lot of them. But amid the throngs were the wrongs, people looking for the sensational and not the Savior, the miracles and not the miracle maker. They were interested in the miracles performed instead of a message received, the man and his message. There was a desire to see all this stuff, all this stuff that was going on with their eyes instead of their hearts. There was a half-hearted commitment to follow. Jesus knew this. As long as everything looked good, you know, I'm cool with it. People were saying, no problem, I'll follow as long as everything's calm. Don't want to make no waves. I can follow that, Jesus, the one that costs me nothing. No real sacrifice, no real thought do I have to do because, you know, Jesus has the words of life. You know, let him think about all this stuff and talk about it. No call to action. Hey, Jesus is doing all this stuff here. He's got it all handled. Man, you should have seen him. In that crowd, there were people who were there just for a sideshow. That's why they were there. But then what about us? Jesus looks at us in the crowd and he points and motions to us. Come on, get in the boat. I want you to get in the boat with me. With you, Lord, really? Uh, you want me to get, get, get in there with you? You see, Jesus had called the disciples out of a crowd of humanity, 12 individuals, and Jesus is calling us out of the crowd of the world to detach from that crowd with all its desires for a sappy Savior, to do a detachment from distraction to follow Him. Me? Really, Lord? 
in that boat? You want me to get in that boat with you? Lord, really? There is only one Lord in life. Jesus says, you can call me Lord if you put me first, meaning Jesus. You cannot call Jesus Lord if you say me first, meaning you. Because at that moment, if you say you first, who's on the throne of your life? It's you. It's not the Lord. If you say Jesus, you first, the Lord is on the throne of your life. You're allowing him to guide you, to guard you, and to protect you. So if you say you first, you can't call Jesus Lord. If you say him first, you surely can. Jesus is calling us out of the crowd to get into the boat with him to go to the other side. Yes, I suppose we can think that, okay, he's calling us in a bigger picture of things to go to the other side, to be with him in glory, to go to glory with him on the other side when we die, when we pass. And I'm, I'm sure that's an illustration here. But in this story, Jesus is calling the disciples into what at first looks like harm's way. He's going to call them into a storm to go on a journey with him into the unknown. But we have his word. We can, we can, we can get to the other side. I say can and not will get to the other side because the reality is some of the called will jump ship. Some of the called will jump ship. Judas did. The sea, and us too as well. The seas will get rocky and rough and they will say, I didn't sign up for this. We can say, I didn't sign up for this. I'm not here to argue about once saved, always saved, or if you can use, lose your salvation. But the re- reality is a choice is ours about we can get to the other side. Because from what I see, when Jesus told us about the parable about the sower, some people will follow, but then the cares of this world and the, percu- and the persecution that results will cause them to bail. That's just the reality. In Philemon chapter 1, verse 24, and Colossians 4, 14, it tells us of a man named Demas who was a co-laborer with Paul at one time in ministry, doing ministry with Paul there and also with Luke, ministering to others, yet in the end he bailed. He bailed. You can get to the other side. It says this in 2 Timothy 4:10. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and is departed unto Thessalonica. He's had, he loved this present world. He never really detached from it. He didn't really separate from it. He didn't really count the cost of what it was to follow. So I think that's why we see before Jesus even starts out on the journey across the lake, we see him talking to two disciples and telling them first to count the cost of being a follower of Jesus. I think the order is set for before us for this very reason. Jesus didn't say, let's get in the boat and go to the other side with these two disciples, and then we'll count the cost. He said, count the cost first of what it is to follow me, and then come get in the boat. You have to count the cost first. And I think that the order is there for us to take a look at and observe and to learn from. So now with that being said, we start in verse 18. It says, And when Jesus saw the great multitude about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the airs have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Lord, first let me go and bury, care for death, care for for death until death, my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead, meaning spiritually the dead in sin, bury their own dead. We can look at this picture here. Jesus wants to go to the other side. He's been swamped. There's throngs around him. He's probably tired. Throngs of people were gathered around him. Jesus was not Superman in the sense that he had supernatural, endless energy. Remember, he was human. In Philippians 2, 7 and 8, it says he humbled himself and took on flesh so he could identify with us 100%. If it was 99.99999% of flesh, that would not be good enough to identify with us and offer as a sacrifice on our behalf. Because of that, 0.000001% would have been deity. That small percentage, the divine nature, and how could we ever identify with deity? 
So Jesus had to come and do it 100% man and 100% God. We don't understand that yet. We just trust it and take it by faith. He was 100% man. So Jesus got tired. He got hungry. He got cold. Maybe he got stinky. Maybe he got frustrated. Maybe he got angry, righteous anger. He laughed and he cried. Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted in all ways in 100% man, human. So here we see Jesus telling his disciples, hey, let's beat feet and head for the other side of the lake. He needed a break and also to teach an important lesson here. But just before he did, maybe he had one foot in the boat and one foot out of the boat. A certain scribe came to him. A certain scribe. Why a certain scribe? Why not, why not just a scribe? Because when we look down to verse 21, we see the answer there. Then another of his disciples, another one of his disciples, indicating that this scribe was a disciple. We find the reason. But perhaps this disciple was not yet fully devoted to him. And why? Well, he was a scribe with distractions that he needed to count the cost. He needed to rid himself of that. The scribe tells Jesus, hey, I want to follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, slow down. Let's do a reality check. Count the cost before you follow me. I have nowhere to call my own. Are you ready to leave all else to follow? You see, in those days, a scribe had authority and a position of leadership. They relied on the wealthy to support them. And Jesus tells them straight up, look, if you're looking for a free ride to be supported financially in some way, forget about it. I have nothing. I have no home, no pillow, no bed, no security as far as earthly resources. I have no position. In fact, I'm a servant. I am serving, not being served. So basically the lifestyle the scribe had grown accustomed to, his manner of living was directly opposite to the manner of living Jesus had exemplified. Now, I don't doubt that the scribe, the disciple, meant what he said at the time, but it was an emotional response. We can assume he's seen some mighty miracles of Jesus. He heard all his sayings. Maybe he's seen the leopard being healed, the leopard being healed. Maybe he's seen the, um, the centurion. So he was all amped up. He's all hyped up. But we have to remember, emotions can change very quickly. We can get a new job, a new car. We can get a new relationship. And then over time, the luster fades. Those warm, fuzzy feelings we once had, those emotions, they fizzle out and give way to the reality, reality of living day in and day out. He might have had that kind of heart that was excited. It was all emotional. It was an emotional response, but Jesus said he understood man. He understood how that response could devastate him if it was just based totally on emotion. Because it tells us that we walk by faith, not by sight. There are a lot of people who are like this disciple, They have all the energy and enthusiasm and are like shooting stars. They start out blazing hot and they're full of light and then they fizzle out when things get hard or the feeling fades because they haven't counted the cost. The trouble is that those people may be a famous athlete. They can be a famous actor. They can be a person of position and people follow him. Some pastor or church raises them up and people get all excited and then this person fails, stumbles and fades. Maybe they stumble and fall and those people are shocked and their faith is shaking. Pastors as well. Many a pastor has fallen because they never counted the cost of a momentary indiscretion and where that led them to. Never counted the cost of what they were about to do and how it would affect the body. I've seen that. We've seen that at pastors at churches where they stumble because of a moral failing and what that entailed. The whole body is shaken. The whole body, it can cause a schism in the body where the body splits. People leave the church because they're basing their hope on emotions, on the pastor, how the pastor can make them feel. Their allegiance was to a pastor and not to God. So they get wiped out when that type of thing happens. You know, they're like the superstars of the kingdom and they fall and all the sheep, you know, they're affected in one way or another. And for us, are we like this disciple? Have we told Jesus we want to follow him? If you've told him you want to follow him, why, have you, why do you want to follow him? If we knew why, then were we willing? Are we willing to count the cost and lay everything aside? Lay all our plans, all our purposes All those things that we hold dear and say, okay, Jesus, what do you want to do? We don't say to Jesus, we have all these plans. We have all these things going on, a a job, a career, a spouse. You know, you fill in the blank for whatever it is that you have going on in your life. And then you say, would you come in and bless them, Lord? 
Would you come in and bless all these plans that I have, that I want to do, that I want to pursue? That's totally backwards. We say, we should say, Jesus, I put all these plans aside. I follow you. I pick up the ones that you tell me you want me to pick up. I don't pick up the ones that I want to pick up unless you tell me to pick them up. If for some reason you're thinking you want to have it all together and have your plan of life, whatever you want to do, without consulting the Lord, seeing what he has to do, and then you want him to come in and bless it, forget about it. You're in trouble. I wanted to be a big rock star. I was asking him, Lord, I was having my mom pray for me that I make it. You know, my mom, I told you, I will pray for you that you get saved. <laughs> that the Lord will have his will in your life. And I said, Ma, come on. You know, she said, ah, shut up. But truly, truly, if we're thinking that having all these things together, a direction in our life, a purpose, a job that we're looking for, without consulting him, then say, come in and bless it. You know, uh, we've got it backwards. We need to put everything aside, seek him, follow him, and see what he would have for us. So we would have it totally backwards the other way around. So then as we move on here, then, then Jesus moves to the other disciple, okay? It says to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father in verse 21. But Jesus says to him, follow me and let the dead bury uh, their own dead. At first blush, it looks like Jesus was being insensitive. However, the disciple was asking if he could leave and take care of his father until he died. And he says, Lord, let me first. We just talked about this. Lord, me first. Like I said, there is no calling Jesus Lord and saying me first. You can say, Jesus, me first, but never, Lord, me first. Why? Because Jesus needs to have the preeminent position, the priority position in our lives. If we're on that throne, we can't call him Lord. If he's on the throne, we are able to call him. He gives us permission to call him Lord. And there's no indication in this, these two verses here that the man's dad, dad was dead or that he was actually dying. The dad could have been a young guy, you know, 30 years old. Or he could have been like Arnold Schwarzenegger and be 70 and fit as anyone else and could have bench pressed 300 pounds. Okay? He was saying this, let me go and then at some point, you know, I will return. Really? He should say, it should be thought of, I may return. He was saying, let me be with my dad until my dad passes. That could be another 30 or 40 years before his dad passes, if his dad was 35. It doesn't say specifically that he was dead, that he was dying, but he said, he said, Jesus, let me go until my dad dies. And the Jews, as well as we use dead for uh, a metaphor for many, many things, dead to sin, dead to the world, it's an indifference to something. Jesus is saying that those who are dead to spiritual things bury the dead. Jesus is saying, in essence, I have called you to life, to meaning and to purpose. You are no longer spiritually dead. You have been made alive and called to my side. Remember, he's called out of the crowd with my purposes. Your duty is to follow me. I have what's best for you. This is hard when we're trying to minister to family. Even though Jesus is saying here, hey, I've called you to a new life, to new meaning, and to new purpose. You are no longer spiritually dead. You have been made alive and called to my side with my purposes. Your duty is to follow me. I have what's best. That's pretty hard when we have family and we have loved ones and dear ones who are not saved. And yet we stay back instead of going forward with the Lord's plan and hanging back, hoping that they're going to get saved, praying that they're going to go saved, which is what we should do. But it doesn't become a, a sticking point for us because God has a plan and a purpose for us to go forward with him in, in life. It's a hard thing when you, when, you, when you try to minister to those that reject you. And Jesus tells you, don't cast your pearl before swine. You know, don't be making the all-out effort, wasting all your time and all your energies on, 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 on talking to somebody who's not willing yet to receive what you have to offer them. It's hard with family to leave everything else behind and to follow it and follow Jesus and to make that commitment to him that you're going to do that. I know we have family that, that, that is not saved, and, 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 and it hurts when you see them not responding to your message about Jesus and the love that he has for the unsaved. But Jesus is calling us to a plan and a purpose that are of his own design. We have to be very attentive to listen to that and not get stuck in being somewhere we shouldn't be stuck into. In. Does that make sense to you? I'm not saying don't pray for them. I'm not, I'm not saying don't minister when the opportunity rises, but don't be, let it be all-consuming. And there are people who let that be all-consuming where they can't go forward with the plan that the Lord would like to use them for their lives. Let the, let the, let the spiritual 
ones that are dead, let them bury the dead. You have a new life. You're a new creation. Fashion in the image of Jesus, being conformed into his image, Scripture tells us. So we need to follow. The disciple may have had the best intentions at heart to go and then return and follow, but even the best intentions can go bad when one is distracted. Jesus understood our nature. He said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know many times I've had the best intentions for following the Lord and said, wait, when he said follow. And I understand that when I got distracted and when I didn't follow through, that I didn't count the cost of what it was to not follow him. There were times when Jesus said follow and I said wait. And I did not count the cost of what it meant to not follow him. Years ago, before I headed out to L.A., there was an opportunity for me, a definite opportunity that Jesus was calling me to say, follow me. In the Bible studies uh, that uh, my mom's friend had, I, I could feel the tug on, on me as I was learning more and more about Scripture and about the background and how, how awesome it was to know all these things behind me. I could feel that tug. Jesus was calling me to follow, but I told him, wait, I want to do my own thing. I want to go out and make it big. That's what I was doing. That's what, what I did. I got distracted. I didn't follow through. And there is a cost involved in not following when he says to follow. There's the cost involved of what you have, what you have to do when he calls you to follow him. And there's a cost also implied when you don't follow him. In Luke 14, 25, 33, it says this, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. He said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate the father and the mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple, cannot follow. Because all those things are distracting. And if you haven't, got them in proper perspective, you're not detaching from them. He goes on to say, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, that's his plan and purpose for us, cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Counting the cost. For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. What does that imply? It's that people are watching. People are watching your decision. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to uh, with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, not some things, everything you have cannot be my disciple. That is so hard, everything, to follow Jesus. In verse 29, it says that everyone who sees it will ridicule you. The world is watching how we follow Jesus whether we give our whole heart or whether we're half-hearted. The world is watching you. The fa- your families are watching you. Those around you are watching you. Your friends are watching you. Are you exemplifying a Christ follower where you're called out of the crowd to follow him? Or are you following him at a distance? I don't want to be too religious. I don't want to be too committed. Because then if that happens, that weakens you not to have that commitment. Because bad company corrupts good morals. You can have the best intentions, but if you're hanging around with bad people and you've got that influence going on in your life and you're not hardcore following Jesus, it will drag you down. I would tell my youth group that time after time. You know, you're thinking you're going to bring somebody up if you you have somebody who you... Who, uh, who you want to be in, uh, uh, engaged to or you have a boyfriend or girlfriend and they're not saved, they will drag you down. You have to be wholehearted. You can't be half-hearted in your commitment to Jesus. The world is watching. Your family is watching. What are you watching when you turn on the TV? What are you listening to? What are you partaking of when others are around? Does that draw them to Jesus or does that have them... Stand off. 
This scripture that we just read makes it plain and clear we must be obedient to the Lord. Being a disciple of Jesus will cost us something. It will cost us friends, family, our own time, our finances. I'm sure there are followers and there are disciples. Disciples are those who are called out of the crowd. Disciples follow Jesus into the boats. Followers, they stand at a distance. Well, that's okay. You know, that's good for you. Even for us as Christians, you know what? Um, I'm just going to kind of sit here and and just kind of soak up whatever is coming across the pulpit. You know, so on and so forth. It will cost us something. It's going to cost you time. Followers stand at a distance. Disciples count the cost. It costs something to follow Jesus. I have to prepare this for you from the Lord's Word with prayer, with preparation. I'm not one guy who just can get up here and off of my cuff give you a sermon and talk to you and have it minister to you. It costs me something. It costs the cleaning crew who comes here on Saturday something. It costs them time. Anybody involved in worship, it costs them time. It costs them something. Worshiping God will cost you something. That's a fact. I'm not saying it. Jesus is saying it. This Bible, His Word says it. It will cost you something if you want to be a disciple. Now, you can follow it at a distance and think that all you have to do is show up here. Is your salvation based on serving? No. Your obedience is. Because the Scripture calls us. We should be serving one another. We should be serving here in the body. Now the choice is yours whether truly to follow at a distance or hop into the boat with Jesus. And I don't say that to guilt or goad. I talked to you last week about that. That's not my intention. But man, there is such a blessing for those who decide to get in the boat with Jesus. We get to experience all the blessings and the fullness of being who we're called to be in the body as a part of God's plan. If you follow at a distance, you'll receive some blessing. But if you're in the boat right next to Jesus, following him hardcore, there are blessings that will come your way that you have no idea of because you're living God's plan for you out in fullness as you're being called to be a part of of his plan and called to be a part of the body and stepping into that place which he prepared for you before the foundations of the world for you to walk in, for a good work for you to do, to minister to him and minister to the hearts that are around you. God has it wired for each one of us concerning being kingdom citizens. We all to preach the kingdom. We all are to preach the kingdom. How do we do it? I don't know. With words, some of us are called to preach the kingdom with words, other by deeds, other by doing some works, by doing service. That doesn't, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm just talking about preaching the kingdom. Why, why are you spending that extra time doing this or doing that? You know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just being my part of the body. I'm helping, helping them out, this and that there. You know, I'm doing something unto the Lord, okay? Others by their lives. Others by their lives, they will preach the kingdom. And I've told you that many times. Your lives will preach more than your words ever will as people look around you, at, around you, look at you that aren't saved. We're called to preach the kingdom. And that's exactly what Luke tells us in chapter 9 and verse, tell, in verse 2. When he calls the disciples and is sending them out two by two, he's telling them to go and preach the kingdom. So in essence, Jesus told the disciples that we're looking at here, go and preach the kingdom of God. Jesus had a plan and a purpose for this disciple to preach the kingdom. Now, immediately that should resonate with us because Jesus had a plan and purpose specifically designed for each one of us to walk in as well as that disciple. This disciple was to preach the kingdom. We should be able to see ourselves in this story. Behind this disciple, okay, he's saying, wait, I want to go bury, bury my dad, okay? Behind this disciple was death and deadness, and Jesus wants to call him out of that. Let the dead bury their dead. Us too. Behind us, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've made him your savior, there's death and deadness behind us. Jesus, wa- Jesus wanted him to follow and walk in the life and light and not half-heartedly and begrudgingly, but with all his heart. Jesus wants the same for us, to walk in life and light with him, not half-heartedly or begrudgingly, but with all our hearts. 
You know, we talked last week about Peter's mother-in-law and her being cured of her malady of sickness by Jesus. She was immediately cured and she got up and she served the Lord without Jesus having to ask her. And we too have been relieved of our sicknesses, our malady of sin. Jesus took that from us. So we should be glorifying God by finding our place in the body. What would convince us that this is true? Would it take Jesus to materialize in person to motivate us to seek that place? And if we're following scripture, we should understand that the Lord speaks through his word and leads us by the spirit. Romans 8, 14 to 16 says, For as many are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. In verse 16 it says, The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So in other words, Jesus doesn't have to materialize to get us to move, to get us to answer the call to action. If that was the case, that Jesus had to be present physically, we would still be looking up to, like they were 2,000 years ago because Jesus went up to heaven. Okay? He hasn't yet ascended back to this earth. I mean, he, came with, he, talk, he talked with Paul. We all know that. But Jesus wasn't in bodily form for these last 2,000 years. But the kingdom has been preached and moving forward in his physical absence. Okay? So it's just speaking about serving, speaking about being in service, speaking about finding your position in the body. I say all that to say this. Let's encourage and exhort each other to good works. Jesus is calling us out to do good works, calling us out of the crowd. Let the dead bury their dead. He's calling us to minister to him and to minister to one another. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 says, So let us seize and hold fast and retain without wavering the hope we cherish and confess in our acknowledgement of it. For he who promised is reliable, he's sure, and faithful to his word. And then this, And let us consider and give attention, be attentive, give continuous care to watching over one another, watching over one another, studying how we may stir up to love and good works and noble activities. Not forsaking or neglecting the assembly together as believers is a habit of some people, but admonishing, warning, urging, and encouraging one another, and all the more faithfully as you see the day approaching. In other words, find your part of the body, be your part of the body that you need to be. Jesus calling you out of just being following at a distance, calling you to get in the boat with him, to be a disciple. That's what he's doing. Let the dead bury their own dead. I have a new plan for you, a new purpose for you. Find it. Seek me. Knock. Ask. I will show you what you need to be doing. We learned that earlier in Matthew on on Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so moving back to the disciple who wanted to go and bury his dead, Jesus is saying to him, in essence, detach yourself from deadness, from the things that are vanity, and seek the best. John 13, 35, Jesus said, By your love, all will know you are my disciples. That goes hand in hand with what we just read in Hebrews, watching over one another, our love for one another. Love sacrifices all for the beloved. It was love that compelled the Lord Jesus to lay down his life for us. Does the love of Christ compel us to give our all for the Lord? What's keeping us from giving our all to the Lord, to being fully devoted to him? Jesus says, follow me. What can stop us? Fear, self-concern, preoccupation, an attachment to other things. Even spiritual things could get in the way of having God alone as our treasure. Even spiritual things, thinking we're doing good for him, if it consumes us and overtakes us and, 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 and we're too caught up. There's a balance to be struck. There's a balance. In ministry, there's a balance to be struck. Serving the Lord, there's a balance. Pastors go overboard and neglect their family totally but, and, 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 and think they're doing God a service by being gone, you know, 23 out of, I'm exaggerating, 23 out of 24 hours of the day and think they're serving the Lord, doing a good thing. They're neglecting their family. Spiritual things, if not in proper balance, could get in the way of having God and doing alone as our treasure and doing what's right. Detachment is a necessary step is, is we want to make, if we want to make the Lord our treasure and joy. We can't live with one foot in the world and one foot out. It's the most uh, miserable place to be. When we detach, it frees us to give ourselves without reservation to the Lord and to his service, to the master of the universe. We must learn that we have to detach from the things of this world, things that stand, whatever stands in between us and experience the fullness of living a life that God has planned for us. Count the cost. Keep relating it back to counting the cost because that's what we're talking about. Now, moving on into verse, 20, verse 23, 
Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the seas, so that the boat was covered with waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciple came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? And Mark chapter 4 tells us the same story with a lot more information. Not a lot more, with more information. In both these passages, Jesus says, let's go to the other side. He didn't say, let's try to get there. He said, let's go. Let's cross over. So now, we're all familiar with this story. I'm sure we've heard of it, and we've read about it, and we know the outcome. It's kind of like a Rockies movie. Rockies 1, 2, 3, 4, 8, 9, 10, 15, 16, 20, 50. You know the outcome, right? He's going to win. It's kind of like that. The hero wins. And we can look at this and say, man, those disciples, can't they get it right? Come on, they had Jesus in the boat, the creator of everything. Come on, Jesus, tell them, where's your faith? What's wrong with them? And so we have to hold on, not so fast. Now, before we go brushing our teeth with gunpowder and shoot our mouths off, it may look good on paper, we have the story. We have the circumstance. We have the outcome. It's all been preserved for us to read and glean from and learn from. However, these disciples, they were living this real time. They had no gospel to read. They had no way to know what the outcome was going to be. This story wasn't yet written for them as it is for us for our own encouragement. It's very easy to get down on the disciples and say, come on, you had Jesus in the boat with you. You just seen him heal. You just seen him do this. You just seen him do that. You heard him preach this and preach that. And we can be so hard on them. But then again, what about our own stories? What about our own trials? What about our own storms where we don't know the outcome, where we don't know the results, just like the disciples? Maybe we have a health issue and it could be terminal. Maybe a loved one has passed or is ill. Maybe we get laid off. Any number of things when we don't know what the outcome will be. We're in our own personal storm, just like the disciples. How do we handle it then? How do we handle it? That should cause us to sympathize with the disciples and see how they handle it and what happened with them. We shouldn't be too hard on them because the times of my life when something comes along and I'm not quite sure about how to handle it and what to do, man... It's hard. It's rough. Jesus is in a boat. Yeah, I know. I get that. But man, I haven't heard from you. You're not acting. I don't think you hear. hear. Do you see what's going on in my life? I have sickness in my life. It could be terminal. Are you going to act? Are you going to move? What are you going to do? I could be just like the disciples. So back to the boat and the disciples. What about them? Well, the disciples forgot. So do we at times. Who was in the boat with them? Like I said, Jesus, they saw the miracles from his hands. And they forgot Jesus said, let's cross over. In other words, I'll see you through this storm. The picture is Jesus is asleep in the boat. His head's on the pillow up near where the rudder is. Mark 4.38 tells us that. Because the guy used to sit on it. Whoever was steering the boat, sit on the pillow. And that's where the rudder would be. And that's how he would steer. That's where Jesus was asleep. The storm was raging all around. The disciples freaking out. They were bailing water, rowing for all their worth for their lives, and finally they decide, finally they decide to wake, wake Jesus up. And then when they wake him up, they say, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you hear? Don't you see? We're about to drown. We're about to perish. Now, you know it's a hard situation. It's a dire situation. When these guys, as seasoned as they were as veteran fishermen, and here they're crying out to a carpenter. Help. Crying out to a carpenter. So even though they thought they were in their own environment, their own element, they weren't in that. Maybe at other times they thought they were in charge of the situation and could rely on their own skills as seamen to survive the storm. But in this case, it was so beyond them because it was beyond them. They were brought out into the storm not by circumstance but by design to build them, to strengthen them, to experience God's, to experience Jesus' ability to save them from a seemingly unsurvivable circumstance. And what's the key for them? The key is for them to take their eyes off the circumstance, off the storm, and place them on Jesus. After all, isn't that what the leper and the centurion did? They put their eyes upon Jesus. 
You know, they couldn't rely on their own skills here. They couldn't rely on their own skill set to help them through what they were going through. It was beyond them. But yet, for us, can't we do that a lot of times? Can't we think that we can handle things? We can, we can manipulate our way out of, out of things when in reality we really can't. We need to cry out to God. Many times you try to solve uh, problems on your own, situations that aren't good. You try to do it in your own human thinking about it. Maybe even counsel someone and tell someone in your own human thinking what they should do. And you totally blow it because it's not God's thinking. You know, that kind of situation that the person is in, you're not in your element. It's God's element. It's not yours. So the key here was taking their eyes off their circumstances, off the storm and placing them on Jesus. The thing that we have to remember in this is when Jesus allows storms to enter our lives, it's for a reason. There's nothing like a life and death situation which these disciples were in to bring immediate clarity to their circumstances as well as our circumstances. Storms should bring us closer to the Lord. It says that when we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. They have a way of prioritizing our lives really quickly when we're in the middle of a storm. Prioritizing. Priorities become very clear in our lives when we're in a hard time, when we're in a hard circumstance. The disciples had Jesus in the boat. They cry out to Jesus when the storm is at a fever pitch. Water's coming in. They've given up rowing, doing things on our own. We like to row on our own, don't we? Do things on our own sometimes. And they're about to sink. They saw Jesus do miracles. They look at Jesus sleeping and they cry out in the last ditch effort. Don't you care? Do something. Doesn't that sound like us as well? Trying to plot our own lives, row on our own power. We can handle it. We're in our own environment, our own comfort zone. Maybe we're on a cruise control, and when things go south and the storm arises, we still try to paddle for all get-out to try to save ourselves till we find ourselves in too deep, in too much. And just like the disciples, the first thing that we should have done is the last thing that we do. Right? We cry out to Jesus. The first thing that they should have done is cry out to the Lord it was the last thing that they'd done. And many times that's our last results. That's the last thing that we do. That's a dangerous place to be in. When you should be crying out to the Lord and instead you're doing things in your own power. We have to remember, God wants us, desires us, to bring everything to Him. Every petition that we have, every prayer that we have, every circumstance that we have, because He sees it. He's there with us. If we're in the boat with Jesus, He sees it. He knows the solution. He has what we're looking for in those times. We don't. We don't know the beginning from the ending. So the first thing that we should be doing is when we're confronted with a storm, with a trial, with a tribulation, don't try to handle it on your own. And let me tell you this, guys. If you're following Jesus, if you're close to him like you should be, you will know when a storm is there. You will know when you're in the midst of a trial or a tribulation. There will be no doubt because your spirit bears witness with his spirit. Okay, that's what scripture says. Okay, you're filled with the spirit, so you shouldn't have no doubt that things are going to get bad, things are going to get rough, and you should start praying right away. You shouldn't wait until they get so bad that that's your last thing that you wind up doing. Does that make sense to you? Because a lot of times you're caught in a situation, don't get caught off guard and wait till it's all up upon you when you should be knowing that something's coming or sense that something's coming because His Spirit bears witness with our spirit. You ever had those times when you're, when you, when, when you're in life and you, you know, kind of know something's up and you're not quite sure why it's up? I mean, I, I know from the last church, I'm not going to mention any names, but there was an individual who came to our church that everybody's radar was up and because he was related to the pastor, no one said nothing. But everybody's radar was up. Everybody's. And the result was tragedy. No one said anything about it. No one prayed about it. We prayed about it. We prayed about it when the, when the storm was already on us. That's when we prayed about it. And in that moment, the pastor had to step down. The church body kind of split. They didn't know where to go. All because we didn't start off in prayer. So so then Jesus goes on and he says this. Well, he says this. He rebukes the wind. It says, peace be still. In Mark 4.39, it tells us this. The seas become instant, instantly tranquil. 
calm, glass-like. Imagine that. If Jesus, if you're in the boat, when we're in the boat with the Lord, if you're in the boat with the Lord, that storm is all on us, going, going crazy. And some, some, some commentators believe that it was a demonic storm, storm, because when he gets to the other side, we're going to look at next week. There's the demonic there are waiting for Jesus, for Jesus. So, but this storm is crazy, and all of a sudden Jesus calls it out and says, "Peace be still." He rebukes it, and immediately it's calm. Immediately, the waves, those waves that might have been 20 feet high, now come down to nothing, and it's just peaceful. Can you imagine that? Sun coming out and stuff like that. I mean, the disciples, rightfully so, were, were, were amazed. They were freaked out. And they say, who can this be that the, sin, that the sea and the wind obey him? But there has been an important question asked to them in verse 26. He said to them, why are you feel fearful, O you of little faith? Jesus says, why? What's the reason you were afraid? I said, let's go to the other side. Oh, you of little faith. To the disciples' credit, before you write them off, they did have some faith as they finally knew to call on Jesus to save. And this, what Jesus said, why are you fearful, oh, you of little faith? It wasn't a strong rebuke. In other words, he wasn't chastising and saying, what's wrong with you? Berating them. Don't you have faith? You should have known. He wasn't doing that. He was teaching them something in the storm. I remember times when my kids were young and they were afraid, and even though I was right beside them, they would cry out and be so afraid and say, Dad, a spider, don't let it get me. Danny still does, but anyway. <laughs> no, he doesn't. He's going to kill me for that. <laughs> Actually, my wife does. She, oh. But anyway, here I was next to them. And they were so fearful. Even though I was in, the, in it with them, and there's a little storm there with that spider, I was there with them. And then I calmed the sea for them. Squish. That's sort of the picture here. So when the storms arise in our lives, we must not forget Jesus is with us, that they've been allowed into our lives for a purpose, to build us up and not tear us down, even if it's not the desired outcome. Not everyone is going to be healed in our lives that we pray for. When we hit that storm, not every relationship works out. Not every job opportunity, you know, not everything that we are, are looking to have happen, it, it doesn't always work out. But Jesus says, let's go to the other side. We're in the boat with Jesus. That's where we want to be when we hit that storm. The storm may be waiting, but Jesus says, I will get you through it. Don't be fearful. Trust me. Psalm 107, 28 to 31 says, yet, and, and this goes, this is a prophetic passage here. Psalm 107, 28 to 31 says, yet when they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, the Lord brought them out of their distress. He calmed the storm and its waves quieted down. So they rejoiced that the waves became quiet and he led them to their desired haven. Let's get to the other side. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his gracious love and for his awesome deeds on behalf of mankind. He brought them through their distress. So let's be thankful. Isaiah 24 verses 4 and 5 says, For you have been a strong place, speaking of the Lord, for those who could not help themselves and for those in need because of much trouble. You have been a safe place from the storm and a shadow from the heat. James 1.12 says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterwards, they will receive the crown of, life, crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Hebrews 10, 35 and 36 says, So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to preserve so that when you have done the will of God, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. In other words, God will bring us through the storm. Jesus will bring us through the storm. Those storms are meant for our testing to strengthen our spiritual muscles, to strengthen our faith. Faith is a thing that pleases God. When you work out in a gym, you have to work out and stretch those muscles, work those muscles, and then they start becoming bigger and bigger. You start getting in better shape and better shape. You have, you have, you have more breath. The cardio is working for you, so your endurance goes long. You're, you're, you're able to persevere more. Uh, you know, Before you were going up a, two or three steps and you would get out of breath, and now you're going up a whole flight of stairs without even thinking twice about it. That's what it's meant to be, working out, doing your cardio, doing your work on your muscles. So, too, when God brings us through the storms of life, 
Number one is they're not there by happenstance. God knows what's going on, and God will use it for his good and for his glory, and it will strengthen you in your faith. We have to remember that. Through any storm, it's there by God's design. Okay? God knows about it. He's aware about it. You know, our souls search for peace. The sinner searches for peace amidst the storms that come in this life. You know, they want a calmness. They want rest because they're weary for trying to navigate these world's tempestuous seas on their own. Maybe you are in a storm and have no peace because you're trying to navigate these waters on your own strength, by your own way, on your own broad road, just like the broad road that Jesus talked about that leads to destruction. Let me ask you something. How's that working out for you if you're rowing through this life on your own power? You know, if you're here and you've been trying to live life on your own, to row on your own power and your arms are sore and you're tired and you're in need of rest, then you need to call out to Jesus. You need to call out to Jesus if you don't know him. If you're saved and you find yourself in a storm, don't be afraid. Jesus has said you'll make it to the other side. He's there with you in the storm. We are with you in the storm. We are all with Jesus in the storm if we are disciples. We've been called out. You've been called out from the crowd to get in the boat on a journey with Jesus, just like most of us here. We're all in it together. So if you're hurting in a storm, let someone know. Because we're on the boat right beside you. We're traveling forward, right? It's a body of believers. Remember what I just read in Hebrews 10. Let us consider and give attentive, continuous care to watching over one another, studying how we may stir up to love and to good works. And how do we do that? By not forsaking or neglecting to assemble together is a habit of some people, but admonishing one another and all the more faithfully as you see the day approaching. So in other words, we're all going through this life together. We're all being called out of the crowd. Jesus wants us not to be distant followers. He wants us to be disciples of his. He wants us traveling with him in the boat. We're all in the boat with him. So in other words, as we cry out to the Lord, there's others with us that will bear us up. They will help us shoulder the burden because we're all a family here. Like it said in that scriptures in Hebrews, we're all a family. We have to remember that. We're stirring up one another to good works. Stirring up one another in love. And we're watching over one another. Watching over one another. Does that make sense to you guys here? That we're all going through life together. We're all doing this together. We have our own personal lives. I get that. You have your own things going on. I get that. I have my own things going on. You should get that. But the reality is, is that we're all traveling this journey with Jesus together. We're all moving forward. I hope we're all moving forward together. And we're not forsaking the assembly. When there's times for us to get together here, to gather here, we should be taking opportunity. I'm getting a hum here, Bruce. Can you turn this down? So when, when opportunities come up for us to minister to one another, to hang out together, we should be taking advantage of those. Not just thinking that, you know what? Cubs game is on. I'm just going to hang out at home. I'm not going to come. I'm going to hang out with all my buds and watch the Cubs games. They're Christians, so I'm sure it'll get around to Christianese at some point, <laughs> one point or another. I don't think so. But anyway, it could. But anyhow, we all go forward together. We're all family here. And when opportunities arise for us to take part in it, you know, we should take part in it. It's, it's just an, it should be a natural a natural thing. I'm not trying to heap guilt on you or anything like that. I'm, you know, that's between you and the Lord. But that's why we're doing it. That's why we're going to provide those opportunities so we can kind of hang together, have fun together. You see somebody here who you don't know that well? Invite them over for dinner. Get to know them. They can encourage you, and you can encourage them. So Jesus is calling us in the boat, calling us out of the crowd. He's telling us to count the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. Are you willing to give up everything for him? Are you willing to seek his good? His, are you willing to seek his plans and his purposes for your good? Are you willing to get in the, goat, in the boat with him? Sorry, the goats for the cubs, I know that. <laughs> are you willing to get in the boat with Jesus? I mean, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. He'll bring you through those storms. They're there for a reason. Okay, he's there with you in the midst of them. Cry out to him before you before you, before you hit the last thing. Amen. 
Let's bow our hearts. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace, Father. Help us, Lord, to truly count the cross. Lord, we're believers here. Uh, most of us are believers here. We're, 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 we're following you, Lord. But, you know, every day we wake up, every day we draw breath, every day that we have existence on this planet, there's a, there's a cost that we're going to have that day in following you. Lord, it might be the cost of thinking of others better. It might be the cost of holding our tongues, Lord. It might be the cost of, 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 of whatever, financially, um, time. It might be the cost, Lord, in reality of giving up friends that we once hang, hung around with, family that we hang around with. That's the reality, Lord, and you made it plain and clear through Scripture that giving up those relationships, if we can't detach from them, Lord, not in the sense of of, of giving them up, Lord, totally, but in the sense of prioritizing the most important thing in our lives is you, and then everything flows out of that. But if we can't even get to that point, Lord, where we're willing to give them up, then it says you're not worthy, we're not worthy to be disciples if we can't pick up our cross. So, Lord... In our own strength, we can't do this, Lord. So help us to seek you for that strength. Help us to seek the Holy Spirit, Lord, for that strength, for that wisdom that we need to walk through this world, Lord. And Lord, help us to be wise enough, God, that when we are weak and when we are being beat down by storms, that, Lord, along with us praying to you and calling to you, Lord, that we also talk to others that you've given into our lives that can build us up and encourage us, Lord, in our walks with you, Jesus. That's another part of the equation that we need to understand. Help us to be about that, Lord. Help us to minister to one another in the way that glorifies you, God. We ask for all these things, Lord, in your name. You all say amen. So we'll be up here for prayer. If you need prayer, come on up. If you want to talk a little bit about things, come on.